Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. How many times have we said those words? How many times have we concluded the Lord's Prayer with that profound pronouncement, that final shout of acclamation for that matter? How many times have we gathered with palm branches to mark the occasion of Palm Sunday? How many times have we waved them to and fro, lifted up our own hosannas to God to join Jesus in his Jerusalem parade? I think Palm Sunday has a magic to it. The songs, the pomp, the circumstance. This is the day that the Lord has made. We are here to rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day we've been waiting for. Jesus at last has made it to the bright lights, big city phase of his ministry. It all started out in the country, those forgotten dusty towns of Galilee. But now it's the big time. It's Jerusalem. This is where the truth will be set free. Jesus will... End the reign of tyranny. The kingdom that he preaches about, prays about, lives out, will come to fruition in the only place that it really can. Hey, Jesus says to two of his disciples, I've got work for you to do. I'd like you to go down to this little village outside Jerusalem, and in that village you're going to find a donkey. I would like it. Now, if anyone says anything to you, don't worry. Just tell them the Lord needs it, and they will let you go. I've always wanted to know what happened next. I've always wanted to be there with those two on the road. Can you imagine somebody walking in their backyard? Well, what do you think you're doing with my donkey? Oh, don't worry. The Lord needs it. If only it worked that way. But we jump ahead. All of a sudden, these disciples, they come back with the donkey, beaten, draggled, bedraggled, dusty, old, worn out. And they take their cloaks off of their shoulders. They put it on the donkey. Jesus gets on the animal and begins to enter the holy city. A crowd gathers, as has happened so many times before. They take in the strange sight. This, this is Christ the King, humble, riding on a donkey. See how his feet are dragging on the ground behind him. Some reach for branches along the side of the road. They lift them up and they begin to wave them back and forth. They're caught up in the majesty of the moment. Some are walking in front of him. Some are behind him. And then they're singing. It's small and slight at first, but then it grows and billows over, and with one voice they shout those words from the old psalm. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good. The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The Lord's Prayer ends the same way that the psalm does, with this profound declaration about what's what. They both end with the same word, forever. These are not lifeless words muttered by a dozing congregation on a Sunday morning. These are a, words of a political prayer, a political pronouncement that throws everything into chaos. The church exists to sign and signal and sing about the tension that the Lord's Prayer creates. In other words... When we pray this prayer, it subverts, it reorients, and it upends just about everything. The prayer begins with politics. Let thy kingdom come. The prayer ends with politics. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Kingdom, power, glory. They're very churchy words. Piled upon one another at the end as a final shout of praise to God. But these words, though they belong to the church, they've been taken by the world. They've been used. Kings build their kingdoms and they defend them with murderous intensity. Politics is the basic exercise of those who have power. Glory is what emanates from those who hold power. But this prayer... Straight from the lips of Jesus, it reminds us that no matter what the world might say or believe, the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to God and only to God. Perhaps that's why we conclude with these words whenever we say the prayer. As a reminder that whenever we think we know what the kingdom is supposed to look like, whenever we believe we have power, whenever we feel glory in our actions, that all of it actually belongs to God. Put another way, we are not the main characters in the story of salvation. And yet, who wouldn't like to have a little glory every once in a while? Who among us doesn't long to shine in the light while rising above the ridiculousness that is everybody else? But then we pray this prayer. As we have countless times before, and on Palm Sunday, we get to catch a glimpse of what the kingdom and the power and the glory actually looks like. Jesus' kingdom looks like the parade with the palm branches being waved back and forth. We sense his power as the crowds begin to sing. We remember that glory, real glory, is the cross. There's a temptation, I think, whenever we gather on Palm Sunday, to limit our imaginations to the joy of Hosanna without considering that by the end of the week, another crowd has another word they shout. And that word is crucify. And we come by it honest with announcements about Easter egg hunts, with trees beginning to bud in our neighborhoods. It all feels so happy. Surely that's how the disciples felt. They were joining in the parade. Joyful expectation for things not yet seen. Joy for the one who will finally set all as it should be. That's why they follow. That's why they sing. That's why they lift up their branches. You know, the crowds grow and grow and grow until the cross. Even on Palm Sunday, especially on Palm Sunday, we can't forget the cross. That's why we are surrounded by crosses, crosses in our windowsills, the stations of the cross. We remember the cross even on Palm Sunday. Any kingdom that claims its power and glory comes through the gory, bloody cross is obviously peculiar and confounding. Perhaps that's why Paul always says the foolishness of the cross but for a Messiah who is so stuck on turning things upside down, even the cross becomes a sign of life. One year ago on Palm Sunday, we gathered for worship. We lifted up our ferns and we waved them back and forth. We lifted up our hosannas to God. And on the evening of Palm Sunday, my oldest friend in the world took his own life. On Monday of Holy Week, I woke up to voicemails from friends and family alike with their tear-filled explanations of the devastation that he had wrought on his family. 35 years old, two children. And so Holy Week took on a new kind of poignancy for me because while here at the church, we were making plans and preparing for our Holy Week services for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, I was also working on another service, a funeral service. For a friend. 
So on Monday, Thursday, we all gathered together downstairs in Memorial Hall. We were singing songs and reading scripture, and we gathered at the table together, just like the disciples did on Jesus' final night. And when I offered the benediction, while everyone went home, my family and I got in a car, and we drove to Alexandria. So in the morning, we could wake up, and I could help lead the funeral service. And then as soon as it was over, I would get in the car and drive back here to be here in time for our Good Friday cantata. Now that Friday morning, that Good Friday morning a year ago, we gathered in the sanctuary that I grew up in. It was packed to the brim, as it is when these things happen. Filled with young families, all trying to make sense of something that never, ever makes sense. And for me, the juxtapositions were rather stark because even though it was Good Friday, they had already brought in the Easter flowers for Sunday. There were women all wearing their new Easter dresses that they were going to save for Sunday, but they had occasion to wear it on a Friday. And there were children, lots and lots of kids. In order to placate them in the pews, those who stayed for the service, they were all given little plastic Easter eggs at a funeral. And then we started with words. Words that have been said at nearly every funeral. We are gathered here to praise God and to witness to our faith as we celebrate the life of Tyler John Gray. We come together in our grief. May God grant us grace that in pain we might find comfort, in sorrow, hope, and in death, Resurrection. Those are the words that can only be said by those who know the kingdom and the power and the glory that belong to God and God alone. For there is no way to have or discover hope or comfort unless death is defeated through the death of Jesus who dies on the cross and rises for us. Give thanks to the Lord. For God's steadfast love endures forever. That's what the psalmist sings. It's what we were singing. Forever. It's a big word. Perhaps the biggest word. And Jesus' love made manifest on the cross. Redefines our understanding of what the word forever means. Because it is the embodiment, literally, of God's love that endures forever. God's love enduring forever is what gave me the confidence to stand during that funeral service, offering a homily about my friend now dead, and in the middle of it, I shared words that I cling to in moments of profound grief. Perhaps you do too. Words from Scripture, from Paul. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. And all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I stood up in that pulpit. I read those words, and when I got to the end of it, I couldn't speak. I was caught up. And before I could continue, a woman, a stranger to me, about halfway back on the left side, she said... Amen. It's the word we use. The end of our prayers. It's the one word the world hasn't taken from us yet. Do you know what it means? It means so be it. It means this is true. 
Jesus is forever talking in the Gospels, and he starts by saying, Amen, I say to you. He starts his talks with the word Amen just as much as he ends it. It's his way of saying that what's about to come from my mouth is true. The Amen that was shouted out about a year ago, it shook me. It was this defiant declaration in a horrible circumstance that God's love really does endure forever. It's the amen that I needed more than I knew. It's the amen that all of us need from time to time. Because ultimately we know that we don't really know anything unless it comes to us by way of Jesus. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's why we need other people. It's why the Lord's Prayer is so relentlessly communal. Our Father, give us. We pray it together. Because none of us can make it through this life alone. None of us can make it in the faith alone. We need others in ways we can scarcely imagine or even admit. We need, to pray. We need the church to pray for us when we can't. Karl Barth once said that to clasp our hands in prayer is a beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. When Jesus enters the holy city, the crowds sing their prayer. Much like we sing or we pray before we come to the table. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word. The word on our lips this day when we hold our palm branches. Hosanna. It means save us. The crowds call for salvation. They call for Jesus to save them. And oddly enough by the end of the week that's exactly what he does. Whatever it means to follow Jesus, it certainly means to pray. It's through praying, through lifting up our palm branches and singing our prayers that Jesus makes us his disciples. It's in praying and worshiping and singing and feasting that our lives are changed, reoriented, so that we might lean into God's future, what we call the kingdom of heaven. All the words of these prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing, they set us on an adventure. They set us on a parade. Every time we open our mouths to pray, the heavens are opened, God's kingdom comes, and we shout that last decisive amen. This is true. The gospel proclamation is that God in Christ marches to the place called the skull on our behalf no matter what. Jesus takes all of our sins, past, present, and future, nails them to the cross, and leaves them there forever. Jesus dies. And three days later, God gives him back to us. In other words, the end has no end. And if that weren't enough, if that wasn't good news enough, there's even better news. That when we can't muster up the courage to pray, when we are down in the dumps of grief, when we are overwhelmed with fear, there is someone else who prays for us. As we got near the conclusion... Tyler's funeral a year ago, after all the tears had landed on the pews, when we were spent, the liturgy ended with a final prayer. God of love, we thank you for all with which you have blessed us even to this day, for the gift of joy in our days of health and strength, and for the gifts of your abiding presence and promise in the days of our pain and grief. We praise you 
for family, for home, for friends, for our baptism, for our place in your church, with all who have faithfully lived and died, and above all else, we thank you for Jesus, who knew our griefs, who died our death, who rose for us, who lives, and who prays for us. And as he taught us, so now we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.